This is They Create Worlds, episode 91, Bally, the Road to Fitness. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We have seen the glorious rise of Bally, and yet we have not discussed a single video game. It's all been arcade and pinball, just like little young me enjoyed playing when I was younger. Except not. And gaming. And gaming. We had to keep gaming. We had to do a lot of gaming between last episode and this episode. <laughs> just to keep up with anything. But since we've been so lazy just sitting here all this time for the last two weeks, we need to go to Bally Fitness in order to work off all of that sitting around that we've done. (laughs) And then we even get to pay a visit to our good friend Donald Trump. Wait, what? That's right. Donald Trump's going to be a part of this story, Jeff. I'm not even kidding. Oh, my. Video games, however, will continue to only be a very small part of this story. Because as we said in the last episode, we really are focusing on Bally, the parent corporation, and kind of all the tendrils and tentacles that it had extending into all of these businesses. Obviously, video games became a very, very big part of that. Space Invaders, Pac-Man, Galaxian. These are not games that Bally or its subsidiaries created, but they are games that it licensed and imported to the United States. So video games are a very important part of the Bally story. But one of these days, we will probably do an episode that's actually devoted, maybe even a couple of different episodes, devoted to some of the subsidiaries that Bally had working on video games. Bally itself never really released a video game under its label. They were this diversified company, and that wasn't what the Bally name was for. So Bally is pinball. Bally is slots. Bally is all of that kind of stuff, and Bally is only secondarily video games. But in order to understand how the video game elements of Bally occurred uh, and how the subsidiaries came to do what they were doing, you still do have to understand the the overall Bally corporate history as well. So that's what we're doing in this two-parter. So a little less video gaming than some of what we do, but still quite relevant. Well, it's sort of like the History Channel, the old History Channel. (laughs) It may not be quite exactly what you expected, but you enjoy the ride. And there will be aliens. Or is that the new History Channel? That's the new History Channel. (laughs) I don't know why. Our story will have aliens. As long as it involves space invading aliens. (laughs) They will be invading from space. Well, good. As long as they speed up, reverse direction, and move down. So, um, for those of you just tuning in, uh, I believe we left off our last episode with Bally at the height of its newfound powers. Uh, The new Bally that had emerged from the wreckage of the old Bally slash line manufacturing. William O'Donnell, as we had discussed, took over the company in the mid-1960s with a motley crew of investors, some of which uh, were very much tied to organized crime and had introduced the first electromechanical slot machines to completely revolutionize and dominate the slot machine business. 
and uh, had finally reached this pinnacle in 1969 of going public, becoming the first publicly traded coin-op company ever. So that's pretty good. So what do you do for an encore? Well, for Bill O'Donnell, what you do for an encore is you make the most horizontally and vertically integrated company that you possibly can. Now, this isn't something that really started with O'Donnell necessarily. A lot of the vertical integration was already actually started under his predecessor, Ray Maloney. During the, the 1950s, possibly some of it in the 1940s, I'm not sure, but in that time frame, Ray Maloney bought a lot of companies. A whole lot of small little companies. I'm going to rattle some of these off here, even though it's, it's really not important. As we said, you had the Line Manufacturing Corporation at this period, and you had Bally Manufacturing as a subsidiary of Lion. Well, Lion had a bunch of other companies that they had purchased that made a lot of the parts for coin-operated games, because we haven't really talked about that. We never really will, quite frankly, but there is a whole infrastructure that goes into creating a coin-operated game. Because you have all of these finicky little parts, especially back then before it was all solid state, that are really only used in coin-operated games or other coin-operated equipment that don't necessarily have any other real-world application, but you need hundreds of these little pieces to make these machines work. We're talking coin mechanisms, we're talking steppers, we're talking relays, we're talking solenoids, we're talking all of these little bits that go into making these games. Part of the reason why Chicago was the center of this industry and why no other place could really fully supplant Chicago as the center of the industry, not even Silicon Valley, is because you not only had the big manufacturers like the Bally's and the Gottlieb's and the Williams up in Chicago, but you had all of these teeny tiny little manufacturing companies that would make all of these little pieces and then sell them to the big companies. So you had this entire infrastructure in place that was just this entire ecosystem in place, I should say. It was just supporting these big manufacturers. This is, as a tangent, the main reason why Atari found that they could not compete with Gottlieb or with Bally or with Williams in pinball, because Atari did found a pinball subsidiary in the mid-1970s, as we talked about in our Atari episodes, but they could not get parts at the same low prices in Silicon Valley that these Chicago companies could get in Chicago, because that ecosystem just was not there, particularly for pinball. So Maloney started a quest to make Bally its own source for all of these teeny tiny little kind of components that they had to purchase and put into their machines. So he bought a ton of these companies. He bought a company called Grand Woodworking that made cabinets. He bought a company called Como Manufacturing that specifically creates coin mechanisms for these coin-operated machines. He bought a company called the Ravenswood Screw Machine Corporation, which uh, is not naughty at all. It just made screw machines, the kind of uh, machines that you need for some of your tooling of this kind of stuff. He bought a company called Comar Electric Company that created coils and relays, coils and relays both being very important pieces of equipment in uh, electromechanical pinball machines especially. He bought a company called Marlin Electric Company that created electrical connectors 
So he had this entire network of companies they bought, and these were all Chicago companies or the Chicago suburbs nearby, either Chicago or Chicago suburbs. So he built this entire ecosystem for his own products. He, of course, also expanded the company broadly. The company was not just in pinball, but was also in slot machines, as we talked about. The only major areas that they never really got into were jukeboxes, because the companies in jukeboxes were very well established, and there really wasn't room for another jukebox company, and vending machines. And they even got into vending very briefly. Uh, They actually created a company called Bally Vending Corporation. This is, again, under Maloney. We're backtracking a little bit. That created hot drink vendors, you know, like coffee vendors where it pops out your paper cup and pours the coffee in your paper cup and is like, here's a cup of coffee. That was actually doing pretty well for them, but his sons had to sell that business when they were trying to save the company after Maloney's death uh, because they needed money and it was a profitable division, so they sold it off to Seberg. So outside of those two areas, they were really involved in just about everything. Maloney had built kind of a component manufacturing base for the company. O'Donnell, when he took over the company, and then when he had money because they took it public, he started broadening again the offerings of the company. So in 1969, same year they went public, they made two very important purchases. One of them was another cabinet company, Link Smith, which was one of the biggest uh, producers of arcade cabinets. So again, that just gave them some more of that capability in the manufacturing and the component manufacturing space. The other company, which was the super duper important company that they bought in 1969, was the Midway Manufacturing Company. And that's why we get the name Bally Midway eventually, I imagine. Exactly. We eventually do. And then, of course, the Midway name persists uh, under Williams. We talked about that part of the Midway story when we did our Williams manufacturing episodes, because all of these companies, and we'll explore this from the Bally perspective as this episode proceeds, all of these companies end up being interconnected in one way or another. So the Midway name, uh, of course, continues to last all the way to 2011, but the Midway of 2011 is not the same Midway that we're talking about here because of all of this corporate shenanigan stuff. These coin-op companies like being complicated, even if none of them are quite as complicated as Sega was. Well, they're all aspiring to do what Sega has mastered. Mm -hmm. So Midway was a relatively small operation. It was established in 1958 by an electrical engineer named Hank Ross and a mechanical engineer named Iggy Wolverton. They had both worked for other companies, most recently United Manufacturing. While that company was falling apart, they decided that they had the necessary skills that they could go into business themselves and and make some interesting games. So they founded Midway in 1958 and ran it uh, for 10 years then, just over 10 years, 11 years, before selling it out to Bally. The reason this was a good fit for Bally is Bally was really, as far as coin-operated amusements went, primarily in pinball. They were also involved a little bit in uh, ball bowlers and shuffle alleys, and they were involved in kiddie rides. But they didn't get heavily involved in what we would call arcade or novelty pieces. Things like target shooting games and driving games and all of that kind of special stuff. That isn't to say they never released anything in those fields, because they did release a shooting game or two, but... That was not their area of expertise. They were really focused on the pinball primarily and then 
ball bowlers and, and kitty rides uh, a little bit behind that. Midway was never a pinball company. Some people just do get a little confused on that. I think they kind of assume that any company that was in existence in that time period in the 50s or 60s when pinball was uh, still a significant force in the arcade must have been making pinball. But Midway Manufacturing never got into pinball. They were a small company and they wanted to find a niche that would work for them. And so they really concentrated on target shooting games, pitch and bat baseball games. And then a little later on, they added a very popular shuffle alley line as well. But they never got involved in pinball, so they were in the arcade piece area. So this was just a perfect fit because Bally really wasn't there at all. And O'Donnell wanted to keep expanding the company and expanding what the company was doing. And so they complemented each other very, very well. So in 1969, Bally purchases the Midway Manufacturing Corporation and allows them to continue running pretty much independently. Iggy Wolverton is the president. Uh, Hank Ross is the treasurer secretary. And Iggy Wolverton remains the president of Midway after the purchase. Midway is basically allowed to continue making all of its own decisions about the kind of products that it wants to do. Bally isn't there saying, make this, make that. I talked to Dave Morofsky, who was uh, head of operations for Midway and then became the president of the company after uh, Iggy Wolverton retired. He's since passed on, unfortunately, uh, Dave, but I talked to him. It was actually the very first interview I ever conducted. I think I mentioned that in one of the other episodes. But he described the relationship with O'Donnell as being very much like a family. And if there was something that the family needed to discuss, it's just an analogy he used. If there was a family matter that needed to be discussed, then, you know, you'd all get together at your kitchen table and have a family meeting and kind of work out between everybody, you know, what needs to be done. I mean, he did not find it to be a domineering relationship. He found it to be a relationship of equals. O'Donnell was a fairly, humble's not the right word, but a fairly low-key Midwestern kind of guy, down to uh, earth. as a lot of these Chicago guys were. Yeah, down to earth. I mean, he drove a he drove a Rolls, so I mean, he wasn't he wasn't completely down to earth. But he was also the type that wasn't afraid to literally roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty. He wasn't, even though there were a few luxuries that he did enjoy. He was very much in tune with people on the front lines. Morofsky found that O'Donnell was very easy to relate to, and that. Midway was given a lot of freedom to continue just doing what they did best without interference. But there was a great compliment there because now they're, they've got these target shooting games, they've got the good shuffle alley line, they've got the baseball games to go along with Bally's operations, particularly in pinball, and then, of course, slot machines, which is not an amusement. 1972, they do another significant expansion they buy a German company called Wolf Apparatenbau, and they make European gambling machines. Gambling is a little different in Europe than in the United States, or at least it was back then. Now, I'm not in any way an expert on European gambling, so I'm not going to get too far into the weeds on this, but slot machines were regulated in Europe well, well, well before they were regulated in the United States because there had been strict gambling laws in Europe, in places like France and the United Kingdom that even predated electromechanical, I mean, laws that go back to the 17th century and the 18th century and the 19th century, prohibiting gambling. Now, in the 20th century, a lot of those laws were relaxed. You know, slot machines, one of the things that really fueled 
Bally's growth in slot machines was when the uh, British government relaxed restrictions on slot machines in pubs, which meant then that every pub in (laughs) the United Kingdom suddenly filled up with slot machines. And of course, a lot of those were Bally machines because Bally was such a big company. Uh, So that's not to say that at this point, slot machines weren't legal, but they went through a a long period of time where they were not legal. And because of that, European companies had come up with their own kinds of gambling devices that were separate from slot machines and roulettes, even though those also existed. Uh, so Wolf Rottenbau created wall machines. I don't know what all they made. I mean, some of the wall machines are kind of similar, actually, to Apache Slot and Pachinko and some of that kind of stuff in Japan, because... Japanese devices like Pachinko and Patchy Slot actually took a lot of inspiration from the wall gambling games that were being done in Europe. But that was a whole nother area of gaming that Bally wasn't in at all because Bally was an American company. So in 1972, when they buy Wolfhop Rottenbau, again, that just like buying Midway, that opens up a whole nother category of machines that they're not involved in and a whole nother revenue stream for the company. Now, to be clear, when you say wall machine, we were talking about ones that are actually installed on the wall of these pubs and bars, not sort of like cabinets that are on the floor so much. Correct. I'm sure there must be some some videos of some of these that can put in the show notes. I mean, there's certainly pictures of these things (laughs) online, and I'm sure there's probably video as well. If you were to look at some of these machines, you would see... Various features that looked incredibly similar to the Pachinko and Patchy Slot games that are being done in Japan, because uh, some of them have the same kind of lever mechanism and uh, have a small number of pins. They're not set up in the same way as a Pachinko board, but have a small number of pins or have circular lanes very similar to a Pachinko machine. Really, and I think we talked about this in our Japanese arcade episode, the Pachinko machine was basically a combination of elements of Bagatelle, or American pinball, and then elements of wall machines, wall gambling machines that were prevalent at the time in Europe. Because, as we discussed, they tilted the pinball machine vertically, and once you had it vertically, you had something that even if it wasn't mounted on the wall was much more similar to something mounted on a wall, so certain of the mechanisms and techniques that were being used in European wall games just made sense to integrate once you had a vertical machine. Then the other types of uh, common type of machine, uh, there was a type of machine called a rodiment machine. This was the inspiration, quite literally, I mean specifically the inspiration for the Japanese patchy slot machine. A rodiment is basically the exact same thing as a regular three-reel slot machine, except that you have the opportunity to stop the wheel spinning when it gets to the number you want. We talked about this in one of our Japanese episodes about how there are so many mini games in certain Japanese products, uh, Super Mario Brothers 2 being a good example, where you have these slot machine bonus rounds where you have these spinning reels, or, uh, you know, it's not reels, but in Super Mario Brothers 3, even when you have the match the three rows to create a star man or a fire flower or whatever, we can throw some of that in the show notes, I suppose, now that we've mentioned it. Why not make more work for Jeff? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where you have this, you know, these fast spinning things, but then you have the ability to press a button to stop it when you choose. And that was one of the ways to get around some of the game of chance laws in Europe and also ultimately in Japan as well, where they also had stricter laws on this kind of thing. 
where it feels like you have some level of control over it because you get to press a button to stop the spinning of the reel. So those are some of the types of wall machines. I think there are other types as well. Like I said, I'm not a expert on European wall gambling devices, and it's uh, way too far outside my area of interest for my video game history research for me to educate myself. But That gives you a kind of rough idea of what some of these machines are like, and I'm sure we can find something to put in the show notes that highlights a little bit of this. So what you have going on, though, is you have Bally that's already a big company in a lot of these areas of coin-operated machine manufacturing becoming even bigger by purchasing these other companies like Midway and Wolf Operatenbau. The next thing that he decides to do, now that they're vertically integrated, so they're, they're horizontally integrated on manufacturing because they've acquired all of these parts makers and stuff over the years. Now they're horizontally integrated when it comes to all sorts of amusements and gambling devices. O'Donnell's next step after this is to complete the vertical integration of the company. O'Donnell's goal is really to be the leading company on every step of the coin-op chain. So with these early purchases, he's got manufacturing locked down. But recall, we have the three-tier system, of course, in coin-op. You have the manufacturers that sell to the distributors that sell to the operators. And then you have the kind of the fourth tier of the location owner, which may or may not be separate from the operator. It varies. So now that he's got the manufacturing thing completely down, he starts a new push to vertically integrate the rest of the company into distribution and operation. So that's kind of the story of Bally through most of the 1970s. At the very end of 1972, the company buys a company called Empire Distributing. Empire is the premier coin-operated amusement distributor in the country. They're based in Chicago. They don't distribute everywhere because, you know, distribution is very much a regional thing. But they're based in Chicago, and their territory is kind of in that area of, uh, you know, northern Illinois, Milwaukee, all of these areas. And because they are a major distributor right where the manufacturers are, they have become one of the big tastemakers in the industry. It's kind of if Empire thinks a game is going to do well and is going to be a hit and buys a lot of them, then that's kind of a sign to smaller distributors in other parts of the country that this is something they should be paying attention to as well. They're run by a guy at this point named Joe Robbins. We talked about him before because he later goes on to be co-president of the, and then sole president of Atari's coin-operated games division a little later on after this, getting in on the manufacturing side. But he is known as one of the major tastemakers. He has a good nose for what games are going to be successful. He didn't found Empire Distributing. The founder was a guy named Gil Kitt. He joined it a few years later, but he's been with the company for uh, decades since the 1950s, I believe, and is just one of the finest distributors in the country. So Bally buys Empire in December of 1972, and Joe Robbins becomes part of the board of directors of Bally. And so now they have a major inroad into distribution. They also set up international distributors as well. So during this period of time, kind of between 1969 and 1972, they purchase or establish, some places they buy and some places they found, distributors in Belgium, France, Australia, and Hong Kong. 
So they're setting up a lot of their own international distribution during this time period. They've got domestic distribution starting with purchasing of Empire Distributing. In 1974, they purchase American Amusements, which they uh, renamed to Aladdin's Castle. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yes. Aladdin's Castle was the very first truly successful shopping mall arcade. And we talked about this in our arcade game episode. But the arcade was an inner city thing. The arcade was something that you put in a building downtown where there's going to be lots of foot traffic and high turnover and people come in and play your games. That classic inner city arcade had been in decline for decades because the American population was moving into suburbia. And uh, suburban locations that you might put some games in, like bowling alleys or discount stores, would take a small number of games, often more oriented towards kids. That's really all they would want. So this is the point, you know, when the bar trade, the same trade that was fueling the jukeboxes, the bar and tavern trade, became the major portion of arcade game sales. The arcade even though we still colloquially call them arcade games, the arcade was no longer as big a part of the picture. And the reason for that is you needed a place with high turnover in order to make that work. Now, shopping malls uh, came into existence starting in the late 1950s, were rapidly growing through the 1960s, but shopping malls did not want anything to do with arcades. Arcades have had, and probably always will have, this reputation as being seedy, this is the place where the near-do-wells hang out. This is the place where teenagers are playing hooky from school if they're the bad teenagers. They're uh, usually dark places, and so it's easy for people to hide out there in the corners and smoke if they're underage and not supposed to be smoking. And there's uh, very little supervision. They're just not considered wholesome places. So shopping malls, these brand new, gleaming, shining centers of American suburban commerce that they were at the time, did not want to in any way be associated with this kind of clientele. So then this guy, Jules Millman, who I'm sure we talked about in our Arcade Evolution episode, comes along, and he notices, because he works for a distributor, uh, another big distributor based in Chicago called Worldwide Distributing, one of Empire's big competitors, and he comes to feel that there really is a natural link between a commercial space like a shopping mall and an arcade, and that with the, the amount of people going through and, and the opportunity there, that that can be very profitable. So he decides to tailor the arcade experience in a manner that a shopping mall owner will be more open to the whole idea. He decides to pay full-time attendance to be there at all times. He puts in strict rules, no eating, no drinking, no smoking, and has the attendance there to make sure that those rules are enforced and make sure that they are actually enforcing those rules. He uh, makes sure that these places are kept clean and they're kept reasonably lit. I mean, you never want an arcade to have just completely bright lights, uh, even pre-video, because you've got all the flashing lights and everything on the individual arcade machines and you don't want to dilute that. But they're at least not going to be poorly ventilated dimly illuminated, smoke-filled hangouts for near-do-wells. They're going to feel like something that's more modern and something that's more acceptable. It takes him a while to find a mall that will take one of his arcades or allow him to try out this new concept because 
like I said, there's all the skepticism about arcades and how awful they are. But he finally finds a shopping mall in the Chicago area that is having trouble filling all of its space. And so they're like, well, we might as well take a chance on this. It does well enough that other malls start becoming receptive to his ideas. So he slowly starts expanding this concept, kind of one shopping mall at a time. Well, here's another opportunity then for Bally to get involved in operating, to get involved in another area of the business. I should back up and say that Bally at this point had already purchased another organization called Carousel Time that was a uh, operator of games primarily in stores, like in discount stores and, and places like that. They weren't in shopping malls. But Carousel Time, uh, which had been founded in the 1950s, was kind of doing some of the same stuff before Aladdin's Castle, but in different locations. So they buy American Amusements, Millman's company. Millman calls his arcades Aladdin's Castles, but the, the company is called American Amusements. And then he merges, O'Donnell merges American Amusements and Carousel Time, these two operations of his, together. And now they have this really, really dialed-in operating network. Now, there's only a couple of dozen Aladdin's Castle arcades when they take it over, but Bally, with their money, because they've gone public, they have a lot of money, starts a massive, massive expansion of Aladdin's Castle. So by the end of the decade, there are hundreds of these things. They're by far the leading shopping mall arcade chain. Not every single arcade in a shopping mall is part of a chain. There are still independently run arcades as well. But as the shopping mall arcade concept becomes more and more widespread as the 1970s go along, and then, of course, the early, late 70s, early 1980s, when Space Invaders and video games just makes the whole thing blow up, Aladdin's Castle is at the forefront of that whole thing during this entire time. He's got a major distributor. He's got a major operator. He's bought a couple of major manufacturers to fill in holes where the company is not already existing. He has just about everything he could ever want. But there's one thing that Bill O'Donnell wanted more than anything else in the world, than any of these other pretty little things he's been buying throughout the 1970s. And what is that? A casino. Really? Well, remember, Bally is in slots. Now, slots is actually not the most profitable part of Bally. Through most of this period, the coin-operated amusements are still the portion of the business that are the most profitable. Slots are very profitable. Bally slots, as we talked about in the last episode, are in something like 94% of all Nevada casinos. And in this period of time in the United States, the only casinos are Nevada casinos. So if you're in 94% of Nevada casinos, that means you're in 94% of the legal outlets for gambling machines. I'm sure they probably had similar domination of illegal and gray market outlets for these machines in other parts of the United States as well. But as a publicly traded company, you don't talk about that. So, I mean, they're the dominant force in slot machines. But as much money as you can make supplying slot machines to all of those companies, you can make a hell of a lot more money operating those slot machines. That's where the real money is in gambling machines. Not selling, but operating. <laughs> And who are the operators of gambling machines? I mean, the big ones are casinos. Nowadays, with more lax gaming laws, uh, the answer is, you know, every single bar and restaurant in America has, like, feels like, or not all of America, but in states that have legalized it, have four or five. I can remember when our own state of Illinois 
legalized uh, slot machines and gambling machines in uh, bars and eating establishments. And suddenly all of these places had built these little side rooms that said must be 18 or older. Cross with the, the magical the gaming room. machines. Yes. <laughs> but at this time, you know, if you're operating a, a slot machine, you're, you're most likely a casino. Now, the whole casino thing was a real conundrum for Bally. O'Donnell wanted to be involved in that business, but since he was also the primary manufacturer, he didn't want to create a situation where casino operators saw Bally as a serious existential threat to their business. Because if Bally is both their primary supplier of machines and is running their own casinos, then that means that Bally can potentially wield monopolistic powers where they sell themselves their own slot machines at cost and jack up the price on slot machines for everybody else and then are able to create a situation where their casino is more profitable than the competing casinos. He's afraid that if he makes Bally that big of a threat, Either the Vegas casinos will start looking for other companies to buy their machines from instead of Bally, or he could get involved in some messy kind of antitrust kind of litigation or something like that. Or considering that this is Nevada and the era of the mob controlling it, they might come up to him quietly and make him an offer he can't refuse. That's true. Uh, you know, by, by the late 1970s, the mob is, is getting close to out of it. But yeah, <laughs> there's, there's still some elements, that's for sure. And certainly in the 1960s, <laughs> there were still some big elements. He wanted to own a casino, but he didn't feel it prudent to try to open a casino or buy a casino in Las Vegas or Reno because of his relationship with the other owners there. But then in 1976, the voters in the great state of New Jersey, decide very narrowly on a referendum to legalize gambling in Atlantic City. Atlantic City had been one of the premier resort holiday destinations in the the Roaring Twenties in the United States. All of those street names in Monopoly, Baltic and Mediterranean and Park Place and Boardwalk, those are all Atlantic City locations. That's what the basis of the Monopoly board was, because that was the luxury community with all the luxury hotels and all the great luxury entertainments. That was the mecca for East Coast wealthy people as a vacation and resort destination. Of course they would be. They have four railroads there after all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But after the war, that really ended. You know, once you had highways and automobiles and suburbia, that kind of changed the way people went on holiday. People didn't necessarily have to go on holiday at a place that was right next to them. Because with better automobile travel or even air travel, you had a lot more options of getting to someplace else, some entirely different place in the country quickly. You didn't have to do your vacationing so close to home anymore. And that really disrupted the patterns for a lot of locations along the East Coast, because Atlantic City might have been a more pleasant place to be in the heart of August than Manhattan. It's still the the Northeast of the United States, which isn't exactly the most pleasant of places when it comes to weather. Now that it's much more attainable to go to Florida or California or (laughs) some of these other places, you didn't need those close-in resorts like Atlantic City anymore. And so 
uh, Atlantic City went into a massive, massive decline. Gambling at this point was still something you could only do in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas isn't exactly the uh, nicest place in the country either. It's in the middle of the desert. At least it's dry there. (laughs) Right, it's a dry heat. Now, I'm not talking about whether Las Vegas is a nice place to visit or not when I say it's not a nice place. I just mean that, climatically speaking, in a time before all of these places had air conditioning and all of these comfort trappings, Las Vegas wasn't necessarily the best place to go. I mean, it became the center of gaming and gambling more because that's where the mob could get away with it than anything else, I think. Not that I'm an expert on that history. So they kind of figured that if they brought gambling back to Atlantic City, because, of course, gambling had been a big part of the hotels and the boardwalk there in the Roaring Twenties or whatever, when it wasn't maybe legal, but at least there was a lot of Prohibition-era shenanigans going on. They figured if they could bring gambling back to Atlantic City, which also had the additional benefits of the boardwalk and the ocean and some of these other amenities that Las Vegas couldn't necessarily provide, that they could capture some of that Las Vegas traffic, particularly for people on the East Coast that don't want to travel that far, and revitalize the city. So Atlantic City became the first place outside of Nevada to legalize gambling. There had been times when other parts of the United States had also had it legal. We talked about Idaho and certain parts of Maryland, but in this time period, kind of all of that had gone by the wayside, and uh, Atlantic City became the only place outside of Nevada where gambling was legal. So now O'Donnell had his in, because this was virgin territory. Obviously, some of the casino owners down in Vegas are probably going to also look into maybe having a casino up in Atlantic City as well, but this is a completely different territory where he would be coming in at the same time as everybody else. He wouldn't be an interloper. When uh, gambling is legalized in Atlantic City, O'Donnell decides that now is his moment. This is his time to fulfill his dream. So in June 1977, Bally establishes a new subsidiary company called Bally Park Place with the goal of building a casino called Bally Park Place in Atlantic City that will be operated by Bally. Subsequently, they start buying up land. They lease an old hotel called the Marlboro Blenheim. They purchase a second hotel next door called the Dennis Hotel. They also buy up uh, a few other plots of land that are directly adjacent to these two buildings. They tear down the Marlboro Blenheim and do a major renovation on the the Dennis, and they start some new construction, and their goal is to make the grandest casino on the Atlantic City boardwalk, Bally Park Place. Target opening date is 1979. Actual opening date? Also 1979. But there's one little problem. By this time, both in Las Vegas as well as in Atlantic City, the mob has been largely chased out of the casino business. And the way the mob was largely chased out of the casino business was through extensive regulation by government entities, gaming boards, that actually had some teeth to them. I mean, Nevada had a gaming commission even back when the mob was in charge, but like I said, I don't know the history, but I assume they were easily bribable or (laughs) whatever. I don't know all that history, but by this time, the gaming boards in both Nevada and Atlantic City are real gaming commissions that are really looking at individuals and whether they have any ties to organized crime, and they are not letting you have a license if you have ties to organized crime. So Bally applies for its license, and it does not receive it. They are turned down for a casino license. 
few things going on here. We talked about how the purchase of Bally by O'Donnell was largely funded by individuals that were related to organized crime. We particularly talked about Abe Green and Barnett Sugarman, who were the front men for a distributor called uh, Runyon Sales that was actually owned by Jerry Katina, who was the boss of the Genovese crime family, one of the five families of New York organized crime. O'Donnell probably really didn't know about this. We talked about that. And as soon as O'Donnell figured out that Katina had stock in the company, he found it out two years later in 1965, they bought him out. So he was out of the company. Well, just because he was out of the company doesn't mean that he was necessarily out of association with Bally figures. Now, O'Donnell himself was probably not in with organized crime. Because of the business he was in, he certainly knew some people and certainly occasionally had some dealings with people that had ties to the mob, because in those days, you couldn't avoid it altogether. The public image of Coinop as being completely tied to the mob has never been true. The manufacturers never really had mob ties in a big way. I don't think the majority of distributors did, though some did. A lot of the operators did have organized crime ties. So there were some shady figures lower down in that three-tier system here and there. But on the whole, Coinop really was separate from organized crime. Coin-operated amusement, obviously. We're not talking the gambling side. But they were there. And because Bally straddled the amusement and gaming sides, there were more tangential ties with Bally than most. And a lot of these ties came through Sam Klein. We talked about Klein in the last episode. He was one of the major backers of O'Donnell's purchase. He was actually the largest shareholder in the company when the smoke cleared on that purchase and was the executive vice president of Bally Manufacturing after that purchase by the O'Donnell Syndicate. Well, his ties with Katina went way, way back. Klein had been a vending machine distributor back in the 1950s. At the end of the 1950s, he sold out his vending company to a guy named Lou Jacobs, who was largely involved in the uh, stadium concessions business, I believe. Well, at that point, Lou Jacobs, who knew Katina, they kind of got together with Klein and were like, we would like you to find us other opportunities, find us other companies that we might want to invest in. They ended up not doing business together, so Klein never formally entered business with Katina at this point. This was about 1960. But he knew Katina, and they continued to socialize. They knew each other professionally, but they also had a personal relationship. How big a personal relationship, I don't know. But the point is, he was friends with the guy. He knew who Jerry Katina was. Everyone knew who Jerry Katina was. It wasn't innocent. He knew who that guy was, and he had business and personal dealings with him. So he's not running Bally, but he's very, very influential in the Bally company. So actually, that caused a big problem when Bally was seeking its gaming license from the Nevada Gaming Commission in 1976. So this is a couple of years before Atlantic City. They were being investigated by Nevada to get a permanent license as well. They passed O'Donnell. They didn't have any problem with O'Donnell, but they ruled that Bally could not get a license as long as Klein was associated with the company because it looked like his ties to Katina were very widespread. So Klein was actually forced to leave Bally in 1976, not only stop serving as an officer in the company, but I mean, he had to divest his shares because 
When they say you can have no association with organized crime, I mean, they mean organized crime cannot be invested in you either. So Klein, since he was ruled by the Nevada people to be an organized crime figure, even if just a a minor one, had to completely divest his shares in the company as well as resign from the company. So they got through that by the skin of their teeth by dumping Klein. But then when they were going up for their Atlantic City license a couple of years later, they started looking at O'Donnell. It may be that now that Klein wasn't there to kind of be the obvious beacon of activity, now that he wasn't a distraction, they started looking at O'Donnell more closely. Again, I don't think O'Donnell really had truly deep organized crime ties. But there were a couple of red flags that came up in the second investigation. There were two main things. First of all, when O'Donnell first took over the company, before they went public, before Money Honey, before the profits really started rolling in and they had the money they needed to do this massive expansion, remember O'Donnell and his people bought what was then line manufacturing out of not quite bankruptcy, but getting pretty darn close to it. So there was not a lot of money in the company to fuel the growth and expansion in the early days after that purchase. So O'Donnell and Klein, and Klein was a big part of this as well, borrowed money to facilitate the early growth of the new company in the uh, mid-1960s from the Teamsters Central States Southeast and Southwest Areas Pension Fund. That doesn't quite sound legal. Well, no, I mean, the loans were legal. Getting loans from the pension fund is fine, but anyone who knows much about organized crime knows that the Teamsters in the 1960s and their pensions in the 1960s were rife with underworld ties. You know, Jimmy Hoffa, he was in charge of the Teamsters. He was neck deep with the mob. He was probably killed by the mob. I mean, never find his body at this point, but he was assuredly killed by the mob. I mean, the Teamsters were neck deep with the mob. So Klein, again, was using his underworld ties in order to get them these loans from the pension fund to do the expansion, to buy their building and and do some of the early expansion. So that was a real kind of organized crime tie. And again, it was mostly through Klein. It wasn't so much through O'Donnell, but that was still something that, you know, it's like you got loans from the pension fund, and because you got loans from the pension fund, the pension funds have some stake in Bali, and that's... uh, organized crime related. That's, you know, a couple of degrees of separation, but that's, that's basically organized crime, guys. So that was kind of bad. They also focused on a Bally distributor by the name of Dino Cellini. Cellini was a hotel and casino operator in the Caribbean, largely. And he became a distributor of Bally slot machines in both the Bahamas and then later on in Europe. You know, obviously, his company as a distributor is independent of Bally, but he also bought stock in Bally. He also took a stake in Bally when he became a distributor. By the time of this investigation, in 1979, he had just passed away. He had passed away in 1978. He had ceased distributing for Bally in 1973. He remained a shareholder after that, but by this time, he was dead. So he wasn't actively involved with the company anymore. But he was a big figure in organized crime because he was an associate of Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky was a a legendary mob figure and one of the key financial people and one of the runners of Murder, Inc. and all of that. I mean, this was top-tier organized crime. And Cellini was a casino operator on Lansky's behalf. 
particularly in the Caribbean. Now, O'Donnell was able to, I think, basically dodge the Katina thing by saying, I really didn't know, and as soon as I knew that Katina had a stake in my company, we bought him out. He had plausible deniability there, and it had possibly even real deniability. He may have really not known. Well, he knew Cellini was a stockholder in the company. Now, was Cellini inner circle? Was he having regular dealings with Cellini? Was Cellini influencing the company? No, he wasn't. I mean, it's not that O'Donnell had a real major tie to this underworld figure, but he owned stock in the company, which was a major no-no. And O'Donnell knew he owned stock in the company, and O'Donnell let it happen. So the Cellini tie was considered far more damning to O'Donnell personally than the Katina ties had been. Another thing that happened during this investigation is a letter surfaced that O'Donnell purportedly wrote in 1968 to members of the Kentucky legislature that appeared to be offering bribes to members of the legislature in return for Kentucky legalizing bingo pinball machines, that kind of gambling type of machine that we talked about. So with these two things together, the Cellini connection and the bribery letter, plus these other things that even though they were mostly Klein, still happened under O'Donnell's watch, like Katina having a share in the company or the pension, the Teamsters pension, loaning them money, that was enough for Atlantic City to say no, for New Jersey to say no, no, no. Bally cannot operate a casino in Atlantic City as long as O'Donnell is associated with the company. So here's this guy, and, and I do feel, I feel sorry for him because I don't think he was an underworld figure. Here's a guy that came from nothing, who had to start manual labor as a teenager because his father died, who ended up at Bally as a salesman, and who ended up saving this company that he cared about so deeply and building it and making it so successful and finally realizing his dream of being a casino owner. And it's all taken away from him in a moment because of these ties that were probably tangential. I mean, if he was hip deep with the mob, I mean, (laughs) no sympathy from me there, but I really don't think he was. O'Donnell thought this was bogus, and he was pretty sure that he could fight these charges and win. So Bally was able to come to a deal with the Gaming Commission that they would get a temporary license, a one-year license, to operate their casino in return for O'Donnell stepping down as chairman and CEO of Bally. So at this point, they didn't make him divest his stock. Because what the hope was is that he would use that year to appeal the decision to win his case uh, in court or wherever it is he needed to win his case, and then he would triumphantly return as chairman and CEO of the company, and they would be granted a permanent license then in 1980. Unfortunately for him, it did not happen that way. Uh, He does his appeal, but on appeal, it's ruled that, no, that was a proper decision. The ties here are too great. You need to completely distance yourself from this company. So at that point, then, he was forced to sell his shares and and do all of that stuff. And at that point, Bally was granted a permanent license to operate Park Place in Atlantic City. So that was the end of the O'Donnell era at the company. Before we close the book on the O'Donnell era, 
we should go back and talk about the coin-operated amusement side of the company during this time period. Coin-op amusements were still, like I said, generally speaking, a better profit center for the company than the slot machines were. But Bally did not have nearly the same kind of dominance in other areas of amusements that they had in slot machines. Now, video was going pretty well. Bally, uh, you know, one thing you can say about them is they were very keen on being at the forefront of whatever was going on technologically in the industry. And the people at Midway Manufacturing were very keen on being at the forefront of what was going on technologically in the industry. So Bally had pioneered the electromechanical slot machines. Midway had done some very interesting things in shooting games that nobody else had done. And uh, when the big audiovisual games like Chicago Coin Speedway and Sega's Periscope started appearing in the late 1960s, Midway wasn't the first company to get in on that stuff, but Midway got in on that stuff very, very quickly. And they were doing elaborate driving games and elaborate shooting games. When wall games, we're not talking gambling games now, but when amusement wall games became a thing, Midway was very quick to get into that business as well. So when video came along, we've talked about this a little bit, particularly in our Pong Clones episode. When video came along, both Bally and Midway were very keen to be involved in this new area. We may remember that Atari was basically funded by Bally when it was established. Bushnell and Dabney had made this computer space game with their Syzygy company and with Nutting. The Bally people saw this, you know, at trade shows and were like, these guys seem to have something new and interesting going on. Then when Bushnell decided to leave Nutting, he went to Bally and said, I'm leaving Nutting. Can we do some business together? And Bally was like, yeah, let's do some business together. As soon as you're away from Nutting, we need an affidavit from you saying you're no longer employed by them because they're a competitor. But as soon as you're gone from Nutting, come to us. We'll do something. We'll have fun. It'll be great. And that's what they do. They get their affidavit saying we're no longer with uh, Nutting. And then they sign that six-month development deal with Bally. And, and this is with Bally. This is with Bally Corporate, not with Midway or some other subsidiary at this point. So for six months, their video game efforts are funded by Bally. Now, Bally ends up rejecting the Pong game. We talked about this, of course, with Atari and with all this stuff, so we don't have to tell that story again. They end up rejecting the Pong game, and Midway ends up rejecting it separately as well. Because, as I said, Midway really did operate independently. So when Bally rejected Pong, they actually, you know, Nolan Bushnell was in town. They actually all drove over to the Midway factory because Midway maintained its own separate facilities and everything, and then gave Bushnell the opportunity to pitch Pong to the Midway people as well, and the Midway people turned it down separately from Bally. That just kind of goes to show that dual management structure that was in place there. But as soon as they realized that was a mistake, as soon as they realized Pong was a big thing and everyone was loving it, Midway... Now, again, this was the subsidiary, not Bally Corporate. Midway took a license on Pong and entered the video game business. So they were in very early on video games. But after that initial deal with Bushnell, they really let the Midway people run that. Bally Corporate didn't get hugely involved with that. Bally remained the pinball company. Midway did the video. But Midway had a lot of success in video. You know, they partnered with Dave Nutting Associates which did some of the first microprocessor-based video games. They had a big hit with Gunfight. They had a big hit with the submarine game Seawolf. The video stuff was going very well for Midway. 
the pinball stuff was not going so well for Bally. Bally had been one of the leaders in pinball in the 1930s. Bally who, the product that made them, the product they were named for, <laughs> got them really well going in pinball. But we talked about how, of course, that they kept veering towards the gambling side of things. So they had really, really pushed the bingo pinballs in the 1950s, which they had success with until they started being outlawed. So at that point, they went back to traditional pinball tables. They started making traditional pinball tables again, but by this time, they were ridiculously far behind Gottlieb and Williams. So they were a distant, distant third. They tried bringing in uh, Williams president Sam Stern, because Sam Stern had turned around Williams pinball in the 60s. We talked about that in our Williams episode. They actually hired Sam Stern. They lured him away from Williams very briefly to come and try to run pinball for Bally, and he stayed there for a little bit, but then he ended up going back to Williams. You know, in the early 1970s, they were distant third in the pinball field. But they had an advantage that Gottlieb and Williams didn't have, especially not Gottlieb, which was a very traditional company. They had that technological focus and that technological push in their other kinds of games. And they had this relationship with Dave Nutting Associates. It was Midway's relationship. Well, no, that, that's not true. They had a relationship with Midway, but they also had a relationship directly with Bally. Just as Bally had found Nolan Bushnell and his Atari stuff to seem very interesting, they found Dave Nutting and uh, the stuff that he was doing very interesting as well. Dave Nutting, we've talked about before, especially in the context of Nutting Associates, which was not his company. That's his brother. We talked about the whole complexity between the brothers Bill and Dave Nutting uh, in a previous episode. But he had ended up going into competition with his brother on the film strict quiz games that were so briefly popular in the late 1960s. When that quiz game market fell apart, he adapted the film strip stuff into some target shooting kinds of games using film strip. He was kind of selling those in the early 1970s. He then branched out into some other unusual types of novelty coin-op games. He had a game, I think it was called Airball, where you used a, a column of air uh, there was a ball on top of a column of air, and you kind of had to manipulate that column of air to get it through a series of hoops and stuff like that. Uh, they created another game called uh, The Safe, which was a safe-cracking game where you actually had an actual safe door was the uh, main part of the cabinet, and you're listening to the, the clicking tumblers on this thing and trying to crack the safe within a time limit. So they were doing some interesting stuff, and they were moving more and more towards experimenting with solid-state components during this period of time. And so when Dave Nutting was forced out of his company, uh, Milwaukee Coin International, and founded his own small engineering firm with Jeff Fredrickson called Dave Nutting Associates in 1974, Bally was very interested in working with him. As I said, Dave was really pushing the solid state thing. And uh, Jeff Fredrickson, his main technical guy, was really pushing the solid state thing. So they created a new version of IQ Computer of this film strip quiz game from back in the day that had been popular that was solid state instead of electromechanical, got rid of the moving parts, and demonstrated that to Bally in mid-1974. At that time, Bally didn't bite. Bally didn't think that a quiz game was very interesting because that fad had long since passed. But at the same time, they were also working on a solid state pinball machine. 
we've talked about this before because we've talked about pinball evolution. We've talked about all of these things, but it's hard to overstate how wonderful it would be to have a solid state pinball system. Because pinballs are full of moving parts like steppers and relays and solenoids that are really finicky and are really easy to break down. And these things are all connected by an absolute rat's nest of wires that can also have shorts in them and this and that going on. You take the uh, the play field off of an old electromechanical pinball machine and you've just got a rat's nest down there of things ready to break. Oh, yeah. I've seen these kind of boards out there before. There was a local place. I'm not sure if I ever took you there. No, and now it's gone. And it's gone now, unfortunately, or at least it's no longer open to the public. Right. The guy had about three or four sheds full of pinball. You could pay some amount, and then for the weekend, you had free play for a good six hours or so. And it was a lot of fun, but in one of the sheds, he actually had, along with some of the games themselves, some of these older machines where he was still working on it. His love of pinball was so much, he was working on these machines, trying to fix them. And you got these boards flipped upside down, and they are insane, the amount of wires, lights, little mechanical bits there. My cousin's, mm-hmm. his wife, has Fireball, right? which we've talked about before. That thing, I don't know if that is actually solid state yet or not. That's a solid state game. Even at a solid state game level, it is still insanely complex and still has a lot of little fiddly bits to it. There's a uh, stuck right. bumper on, one of the, on uh, his board that he's been working on fixing and cleaning up. It's just crazy because you have moving parts. We think that with solid-state boards these days, it is hard enough to maintain them. I can only imagine the horror and nightmare of <laughs> it's all electromechanical. Right. Electromechanical to solid-state is akin to the leap with the early Bally slot machines going from the mm-hmm. just gears and clockworks to electromechanical. Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge jump. Because you can consolidate most of that functionality into just a a little black box that has a PC board in it with a microprocessor and supporting hardware. And Dave Nutting Associates and Jeff Fredrickson at Dave Nutting Associates produces the first viable solid-state pinball system. There were several companies that were looking into it at the same time. Atari was looking into it. Ramtech, which was a video game company, was looking into it. But Dave Nutting's was the first viable system, or Jeff Fredrickson's, rather. He should get the credit, and Dave Nutting gives him the credit for it as well, because he was the electrical engineer. Dave Nutting was an industrial designer. But they created the first system, and they demonstrated it to Bally in 1974. Now, Bally decided not to take it. They decided that they would rather create their own system than license from Dave Nutting and have to pay him a royalty. They wanted something that they could patent and control themselves. So they didn't release the first solid-state pinball. Dave Nutting then actually took his system to a small company in Arizona called Merco, and they created the first solid-state pinball. But it got Bally on the track towards creating a solid-state pinball system before any of the other major manufacturers, before Gottlieb, before Williams, and uh, Chicago Coin was in the process of completely dying at this time, but also before Chicago Coin. 
So that set them on the path, even though they didn't create one right then and there. In the meantime, after that demonstration, a second major thing happened within Bally Pinball that would finally help rocket them to number one in the industry again after being a distant third for so long. And this uh, was the result of the activities of a gentleman named Tom Neiman. Going to spend a little time uh, talking about Mr. Neiman here. Tom Neiman graduated uh, from the University of Michigan in 1972 with a degree in radio, television, and film. So that was really where his love was, was in the media industry. It had nothing to do with coin-op. But country was in the middle of a recession then. Uh, it wasn't a good time, and he was having no luck finding a job. But it just so happens that Neiman is friends with a gentleman named Bill O'Donnell Jr. Bill O'Donnell's son? Yes, who also works for Bally. I'm not sure exactly what Bill O'Donnell was doing in 1972 at the company, but he was in the company. And before the end of the 1970s, he would actually become the head of the pinball division of Bally. So he's high up in the company. And just because his father had to disassociate himself from the company, O'Donnell Jr. did not. He persists with the company even after his father leaves. Bill helps his friend Tom out and gets him a job with Carousel Time the operator that we mentioned before. They tried him as a service tech first, but, I mean, he really wasn't. I mean, he wasn't an electrical engineer or a technician type, so that didn't work. So they made him a delivery truck driver. It's not a glamorous job, but he was desperate for a job, so, you know, O'Donnell's helping out a friend. While he was on delivery, Neiman would actually start paying attention to which locations were running their routes well, or were running their locations well, and which locations were running their operations poorly. He started analyzing the routes and seeing who the real all-stars were. And so they quickly realized that he had skills far beyond just driving a truck, that he could actually be useful to the company in another way. He started doing this full-time. He became a, a essentially a route analyzer for carousel time, figuring out where the best places to put their best machines were based on who was running the best operations. So that led then to a job with Bally Corporate as a salesman, and he was put in charge of moving excess pinball inventory. So, you know, they had their frontline salesmen that would talk to distributors about moving their new machines. Hey, I've got this new machine. It's going to be really great. Take 50 of them. You won't be sorry. You know, that kind of stuff. Then when they had excess inventory, you know, after the machine had run its course, then they would push this along to the next string down of the salespeople whose job it was to basically try to convince some poor schmuck in some out-of-the-way place that, hey, this machine's really cheap now, and it's been a proven great earner, and you should take a couple for your location. You know, it wasn't the most glamorous side of Bally pinball sales, but he was in the sales department. Because he had this background in television and film, you know, kind of media culture, and because he kept an eye on youth culture, because this was kind of his interest as well, and because he was out there on the front lines analyzing these routes, this kind of all came together in his head, and he realized that there are lots of teenagers playing pinball. Teenagers are the primary drivers of the record business, and they are also major drivers of a particular segment of the movie business. If teenagers are watching movies, listening to music, and playing pinball, why aren't we synergizing here? Why aren't we doing something with this information? In particular, 
There was an album by The Who released in 1969 called Tommy. It was a rock opera. Told a story of a deaf, dumb, blind kid that had gone through a traumatic experience and all about quest for spiritual enlightenment. And it's very trippy. It was the middle of the psychedelic period of rock and roll and all of that. But there was a a song on that album when Pete Townsend, the guitarist and songwriter of The Who, was writing this album, Tommy. It dealt with a lot of heavy stuff. There were a lot of heavy themes in there. And uh, while it was still in progress, he actually took it to a music critic that he knew named Nick Cohn and, uh, you know, asked him what he thought of this thing. Nick was like, well, yeah, this is this is kind of good, but it's it's awfully heavy. Maybe you should put kind of a lighter selection in there just to balance it out a little bit. And so Pete Townsend's like, "Okay, I guess I can do that. And so he goes away and thinks about it, and uh, this critic that he was working with was actually an avid pinball player. He suggested, you know, maybe you should be good at some kind of game. Maybe you could have something about a a game or something. And because Cone liked pinball a lot, Townsend was like, okay, well, let's have a pinball song in there. Let's have something about pinball. So he creates the song Pinball Wizard. Not only is this an explicit connection between rock and roll music and pinball, but Bally is actually mentioned by name in the lyrics of the song. There's one spot where where he goes, uh, you know, the third verse where he says, you know, I thought I was the Bally table king, but I just handed my pinball crown to him. So Bally is even mentioned by name in the song. And the song becomes a big hit in 1969 when it's released. You see, you have to remember all of these companies, and Bally's no exception, O'Donnell is a little newer face to the company, but Bally in the 60s, a lot of the executives there are still the same people that joined the company in the 30s. Herb Jones was the main kind of marketing guy at the company during this period of time. He joined in like 1933 and was still there in the 1970s. That's a long run. Yes, it is. And there were several other guys that had joined in the 1930s and continued to be there in the 50s and in the 60s and uh, occasionally even into the 1970s. These guys didn't know who the who was. Who? Yes, that's what I'm saying. The who. Who? I don't know. Yes. Cue the Abbott and Costello routine. So the uh, company that handled the who's music actually sent a letter asking permission to use the ballet name in the song just to kind of cover themselves. I mean, I don't think they really needed to legally, but it's better to just be polite about it. And Herb Jones got the letter and Herb Jones had never heard of the who and Herb Jones didn't bother doing anything with it. But now it's 1974, and Tommy is about to be made into a major motion picture by Columbia, starring a lot of uh, famous individuals, including Anne Margaret, Tina Turner, and uh, Elton John, who at this point is kind of near the start of his fame. And I have the perfect clip for it. It, It's The Who (laughs) and Elton John, Pinball Wizard, Tommy, 1975. There you go. So this Tommy movie is going to be coming in 1975, and Neiman hears about this, and it's like, this is too good. We have to do something here. We have to tie in with this movie. And the people at Bally were just kind of like, eh, whatever, okay, I guess you can go and whatever. They just didn't get it. I mean, licensing was not done in pinball. They did not understand. Well, the people at Columbia got it, because Columbia is a motion picture company, and they do licensing all the time. I mean, this is pre-Star Wars, so merchandising wasn't what it eventually became, but the concept of merchandising was not foreign to the movie studios. So when Neiman connected with Barry Laurie at Columbia, the guy in charge of kind of all of that, 
they were very enthusiastic. They got permission, they got a license to create a table based on Pinball Wizard with a play field that was kind of psychedelic and reminiscent of the look and feel of the movie and uh, with promotion provided by the stars like Anne Margaret, you know, appearing on posters with the pinball machine and all of that and giveaways and major media markets, uh, all of this kind of crazy stuff to drum up uh, attention. Well, Pinball Wizard was incredibly popular with a certain segment of the population. I mean, not a mainstream hit, but a lot of teenagers liked that. So uh, when this table became available, they called it Wizard. It was the pinball table. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of explain, but it's just teenagers and you know a certain segment of the population were just so uh, enamored with the Who and the Who's music and the movie and everything that when they learned this table was coming, it was kind of a must play item so distributors and operators realized it was a must-have item and it basically sold itself i mean bally didn't have to do anything to get distributors and operators to take it and it sold ten thousand units there had not been a pinball table that had sold ten thousand or more units since before world war ii that was a huge number for a pinball table this was not a solid-state machine yet. It was still an electromechanical machine. But with that wizard name on it, it sold 10,000 units. So then, of course, you know, you've had a big hit. Now there's pressure on Neiman to do it again. So he decided that the breakout and most resonant character from the movie was Elton John's character. So he went to Elton John's management and said, uh, hey, let's, let's do a pinball table deal today. Let's do an Elton-themed pinball machine. And his management were receptive to that. They titled it after his new album that was just coming out at that time, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. But really, even though they named it after the album, it really had nothing to do with the album. It was really the look and feel of the cabinet was more based on Elton John's character in the pinball wizard movie. Well, the Captain Fantastic pinball table sells 16 thousand units that's six thousand more yep sets another new post-war record so now it's clear to everybody in the business licensed tables are the way to go so this is the point where everything in pinball starts becoming licensed to the point that you have very very few tables that don't take a license doctor who star trek the next generation yep i mean when we were growing up you know, there were some tables like Funhouse or High Speed that did not have licenses attached, but a lot of the biggest machines like Adam's Family and Star Trek The Next Generation, RoboCop, uh, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> you know, these were licensed tables. And just to point it out, we have Stern Pinball, which is the only surviving company making pinball right now. I'm going to look them up mm -hmm. right now and see what they have out there and how many of that is probably <laughs> licensed. Right. <laughs> we have Black Knight, Sword of Rage. So that's an independent. We have The Monsters. That's an old 60s uh, television <laughs> show. The Beatles. Everyone likes The Beatles. Yeah. Deadpool. Deadpool's popular. Iron Maiden. Another popular franchise. Mm -hmm. Even that Black Knight table, that's calling back to the classic black knight table that williams did so even though that's not a license because it's not like the williams table was a license either that's still a callback to an existing pinball brand so as you can see licensing and cross merchandising is still very big in the industry 
So at least three of those four exactly. machines are actual licenses and one's a callback. Right. And of course, some of the other machines that they've done in past years are they did an Elvis one, they did a South Park one, they did a Game of Thrones one. I mean, most of what Stern does is license tables. And a lot of what the industry did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was license tables. And it all came back to Tom Neiman and this wizard table and this Captain Fantastic table. And I do think it really was largely a generational thing because it wasn't just at Bally. I mean, at this period of time, a lot of the executives were still old guard executives that had entered the industry in the 30s and 40s. And you just did not have the same licensing culture generally in the 30s and 40s. So this was just something that the old people in the industry had never really considered before. But once you got young blood in like Neiman, that's when this started and it did not stop. So Tommy and Captain Fantastic rocket Bally to the top of the industry. They are now number one once again in the industry. And they stay that way for several years. Williams eventually overtakes them. But for the next few years, they are number one in the industry. They keep themselves on top because then they finally release their first solid state machines. They first saw the technology in 74. Didn't bite on it then. The first solid state machines come out in 1975, but they have various problems. Their small manufacturing runs from small companies. There's production problems. They don't really go anywhere. So in 1976, at the very end of 1976, Bally is finally done creating their own solid-state pinball system. And they release their very first solid-state game, a game called Freedom. It's not a very noteworthy game, and it was a conversion, actually. It had originally been an electromechanical game. They rushed out a solid-state version of it right at the end of the year in 1976. It only had a modest run, so it only sold 1,500 units. But after that, all of their games start being solid-state games. So in 1977, they release a game called Knight Rider that's solid-state that sells 7,000 units. Then they release an Evil Knievel game. Evil Knievel was like ridiculously popular in the 70s. The stuntman, the motorcycle stuntman that used to try to jump buses and canyons and usually ended up hurting himself rather than actually accomplishing anything. But he was hugely popular. There's a reason that he's referenced a lot in the early Simpsons episodes. Oh, yeah. So they got the Evil Knievel license and sold 14,000 units of that. Another massive blockbuster. The game that was really the game changer, though, in solid state wasn't even a licensed game, but it was from Bally. It was a game called Eight Ball. It's released in September of 1977. So there are two things about solid-state pinball. We talked about the one. For the operator, it was great because there were fewer service headaches. The major advantage for the pinball player was scoring memory. Because pinball, particularly since the 1960s, pinball was a game where you're targeting certain parts of the board, you're hitting this target, you're hitting that target, if you hit these targets in a row, you get this score multiplier. If you hit this spot at the exact moment, you get that score multiplier. And as you trigger more of these score multipliers, you know, every time you hit a target or whatever, you get a bigger score. Pinball is also a competitive game. Most pinball machines are set to allow for either one or two players. And if you have a two-player game, then the two of you are competing to get the best score. Well, the way a two-player pinball works is that first, player one plays one of their balls, and then once they lose that ball, then player two plays their first ball. And you alternate back and forth, because obviously you don't want player two getting bored by just sitting there for 
20 minutes while player one is playing through all of his balls if he's a good player. Well, with the electromechanical stuff, there's no memory. All of that is analog. All of that score multiplier stuff is being kept track of by literal gears or other parts inside the machine that are rotating and twisting and all of this. Your score multiplier only lasts for the duration of your one ball because everything has to reset for player two. And there's no way for the machine with just electromechanical parts, no sane way, no cost-effective way, for that machine to remember where all the score multipliers were set on your previous ball because it had to reset everything. So you had to start over every time. In 8-Ball, Bally took advantage of scoring memory for the first time to save those multiplier states. So in a two-player game, even though you were alternating your ball back and forth... When it was your turn again, all it had to do was recall all of those multipliers from memory. Bam! You get to take off right where you left off. That was obviously an incredibly popular feature. Yeah. That made 8-Ball, even though it didn't have a license, the must-have machine everywhere. 8-Ball sold 20,320 units. Yeah, that's a bit. That is another new record. That record does get overthrown. The best-selling pinball machine of all time is Williams Adams Family. We talked about that in our Williams episode. But that only sold, uh, you know, 1,000 or so more. It sold like 21, 22,000. I forget off the top of my head. We give the correct number in the, uh, in the Williams episode. That only sold 1,000 or 2,000 more than 8-Ball did. I mean, this shows you that this is something that, oh my gosh, the kids are really going crazy for. You know, at that point, it's clear that Solid State is here to stay and and Bally is going to be the big company. In 1978, they released another massive hit. They released a Playboy-themed machine. So, you know, that's a little naughty, a little risque, I guess. I mean, PG, because teenagers play these things. But still, that machine had a great deal of allure because of the Playboy brand, and it has all of these special scoring memory features and all of that from Solid State. So it sells 18,000 units. I mean, Bally is just releasing hit after hit after hit after hit that sells tens of thousands of units. Williams and Gottlieb also have some machines during this period, obviously, that do very well and sell a lot of units. But Bally remains the king of, remains the table king, ha ha ha, until video wipes out pinball. 1980, 1981, 1982, pinball is just, is DOA. Comes back, obviously. And once it comes back, Williams takes the crown back from Bally. Bally keeps releasing pinball machines during this whole period. But Williams is the one that starts doing the new hotness and has the new technological stuff. And we talk all about that in our Williams episode, the things like Gorgar and Black Knight and High Speed and Funhouse. So you can reference that episode to see where pinball goes next. Bally is huge in pinball during this period when pinball explodes. I mean, 1979, the middle of 1979 is when the post-war industry record is set for most overall pinball machines sold. Over 200,000 pinball machines are sold in the year period from like the middle of 78 to the middle of 79. That remains the post-war record for pinball sales. And during this period, Bally was number one. And then, of course, Bally was number one in video. I mean, when pinball falls off a cliff, it really doesn't matter for Bally because Bally is the one that's driving pinball off the cliff through its Midway subsidiary. 
Midway brings Space Invaders over to the United States. Midway brings Galaxian over to the United States. Midway brings Pac-Man over to the United States. So this humongous video boom that hits in the late 1970s, early 1980s, Bally is on top of that game too. NVIDIA, Midway, and Atari in the 70s and early 80s kind of always duke it out a bit. Some years Atari is on top, some years Midway's on top, depending on who happened to have the biggest hit that year. But Atari and Midway are far and away the most successful companies in video during this period. Nobody else ever comes close to them in the United States. Not talking about foreign markets, just U.S. So life's pretty good for them during this time period. How could they fall? (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of stuff happens uh, at this point. So we talked about Bill O'Donnell having to leave the company. So when Bill O'Donnell steps down in 1979, his replacement is an individual named Robert Mullane. Robert Mullane is purely a businessman. O'Donnell's a coin man. And there's something of a difference. The coin-op people, it's it's hard to explain, but coin-op people tend to remain in this kind of small, insular, family-oriented business. That doesn't mean some of the companies don't get huge. Obviously, Bally got huge. I don't mean that Bill O'Donnell was a small-time businessman. He grew the company into a multi-multi-multi-million dollar corporation. But his focus was always on the coin-op industry. You know, he was doing the vertical integration with buying distribution and buying operators. He was doing the horizontal integration by buying companies like Midway and Wolfop Rottenbau that did kinds of machines that Bally Corporate did not. His focus was always on the, the coin side of things. Bob Moulin came out of the securities industry. He was an analyst for many years before he joined Bally. So he worked in securities in Chicago from 1956 until 1971 when he joined Bally. At Bally, he ended up running that global distribution operation. Uh, I talked about how in the 70s they were starting to buy companies in Europe and Asia and Australia in order to distribute their products. He was running Bally Continental in Europe, their major Belgian-based European distributor, until 1978. And then in 78, he came back to Bally Corporate and was running the entire global distribution operation of Bally. So he was a businessman. He was a bottom line oriented kind of guy. And he wasn't so wedded to coin op. And he's the one that really started diversifying the company outside of coin op. But it's kind of unclear to me what the focus was meant to be. I guess the idea was that he saw Bally as a leisure company. Pinball's leisure. Gambling is leisure. So I guess part of the drive for the expansion that he undertook was other leisure activities. That's kind of tenuous. At the end of the day, I don't think there really was uh, necessarily a great plan behind this diversification scheme. But he was correct, at least, that the company should diversify because, as we know, CoinOp ends up being in a lot of trouble. So it's probably just as well as they were diversifying. But they do a few different things. First of all, they do increase their domestic distribution. They had bought Empire Distributing. They bought several more companies to create a national distribution network. They bought Advanced Automatic in San Francisco, which had actually been Atari's first distributor, turned it into a Bally office. They bought an office in Arizona that they turned into a distribution operation. They bought an office in Boston, I think it was, somewhere in New England, and they turned that into Bally Northeast. 
So they created a nationwide distribution network, continuing that process of having vertical integration in the field. But they also started looking outside of CoinOp. In 1982, by 1982, remember, they are making tons and tons and tons of money. And they're making over $100 million a year now because uh, of the video boom being so big. So they have cash to spend. In 1982, they buy uh, two companies. They buy Six Flags Corporation, Six Flags Amusement Parks. And they buy Scientific Games, which was the inventor and leading supplier of computerized lottery machines. So the lottery machines kind of make sense within the fact that they're already in slot machines and they're already in gambling. I guess Six Flags kind of makes sense because they're in arcades, they're in video games. Amusement parks sometimes have arcades. Amusement parks are catering to the same type of clientele that are going to arcades. I guess you can kind of see where that all fits together with those purchases. But then in 1983, they buy Health and Tennis Corporation, which is an operator of fitness centers. This is the company that gets renamed Bally Total Fitness. It's harder to see how that fits in with Six Flags and Bally Park Place Casino and Pinball, and it's starting to get a little far afield. I think he's trying to define a larger place for the company as a health and leisure company, because health and leisure are sometimes kind of tied together. Well, a lot of people walk for entertainment. They bike for entertainment and relaxation. So I can sort of see that to some degree. Yeah. It's a little bit more tenuous, but I guess the idea is they're becoming health and f- a health and leisure company. Then in 1984, by this time, the video game market is well in decline. After the crash happens, Bob Moulin is not wedded to coin-op, really, at all. O'Donnell would have probably stayed more in tune with coin-op, even if he did decide that there was a need to expand. Bob Moulin is a bottom line guy. He really doesn't care, I don't think, whether Bally is in coin-op or in arcades or not. I mean, he cares about the casino business because the casino business is very lucrative. Bally Park Place is very lucrative. He doesn't really care about coin-op. And so once that industry collapses, he really starts pulling resources out of that. In 1983, the pinball operations are merged into the uh, Midway Arcade video game operation. And that's when you get Bally Midway. That's when you get that new entity of Bally Midway. So everything is being run by the Midway people now, pinball included. And the video games are, are being released under the Bally Midway label now. It's kind of smushed together. Bill O'Donnell, who was uh, in charge of the pinball division, He ultimately ends up being in charge of the operations division. He runs the uh, Aladdin's Castles, and they also try to do their own take on Chuck E. Cheese called Tom Foolery as well. They're expanding into that area of arcade games. Bill O'Donnell Jr. ends up having to leave the company because he has a bit of a drug problem. He's got clean after that, but he had a really bad drug problem and ends up leaving the company. So they bring in a guy from the Montgomery Ward department store chain named Maurice Furchin to run the operations stuff. In 1985, Dave Morofsky, 
who has taken over the Midway division. He took over Midway from Iggy Wolverton in 1980 when Iggy Wolverton retired. Dave Morofsky can tell that the company is really not interested in coin-operated amusements anymore. The market has gone on a downturn. Bob Moulin doesn't really care about coin-op, so he's not willing to ride it out, really. He's kind of keeping it going, but he's not putting many resources into it. So at that point, in 1985, Dave Morofsky leaves Midway to found his own company called Grand Products that does contract manufacturing for other arcade companies, other video game companies. And Furchin, this uh, department store retail guy, takes over as the head of the Bally Midway operation. He's an outsider, too. I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad guy or anything, but he's not from the coin-op field. In 1984, Bally purchases another company called Life Cycle Incorporated that makes fitness equipment and computerized weight training machines, taking them even further afield. I mean, since they have the fitness centers, those kind of have synergy. That makes sense. But they're getting further and further afield from the coin-op industry. They're getting into all of these other areas. The lottery stuff starts getting really big because more and more states are, this is the period of time when more and more states are starting to have lotteries and legalizing the idea of state-run lotteries. Since these electronic machines are basically tamper-proof, a lot of states start using scientific games as lottery machines, and so that kind of becomes a new profit center, which makes the video game stuff even less important. The video games limp along, and the pinball limps along through the late 1980s. Very few video game projects are approved in this time period. The only real hit they have during this time period in video is Rampage. The creators of that game had to actually bypass their boss and their boss's boss to go directly to Maurice Furchin to get the game authorized because it was almost impossible to get a new video game approved for production in this period because the word from on high is really, let's not do this stuff so much anymore. But Maurice Furchin, to his credit, he greenlights it. And Rampage ends up being a big hit. It's not the only game that Midway does in this time period, but they're really becoming less and less of a factor. And then in 1988, they sell the entire amusement kit and caboodle, pinball and uh, video, to Williams. And then that becomes part of the Williams story that we've already done. So just to give a really kind of quick and dirty overview of what happens to the rest of the company. Bob Moulin doubles down on the casino business, and this ends up being a massive mistake. Because Bally Park Place was so successful, they decide to buy more casinos. So in 1985, they purchase MGM Grand Hotels, which owns uh, two Nevada casinos. At this time, the Atlantic City market is becoming more and more competitive. Bally Park Place is still profitable, but there's a lot more competition in that area. And one person who really wants to move into the Atlantic City casino business in a big way is one Mr. Donald Trump. Trump, this is where he enters the story, actually ends up buying up to 9.9% of Bally because he's getting involved in the casino business in the uh, Atlantic City area. And he uses a tactic that He uses several times in the late 80s and early 90s, and it's a tactic that eventually starts providing him diminishing returns, which is one, though not the only reason, that his business empire starts having so much trouble in the early 90s. 
basically what Donald Trump would do is he would buy a stake, relatively small stake in a company like Bally. Then he would say that he wants to move into this business area and he's going to take control of the of said company so that he can move into that on that business. He really has no intent of taking over the company. But by saying that he's going to take over the company and threatening it, he forces a response from the company, and generally speaking, the company buys him out, and then he makes a profit. Short-term capital gain. Now, after a few rounds of this, people catch on and don't play around with that anymore. But this was early in this tactic, so Bally fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and actually not only buy him out, but also decide to buy another casino in Reno, the Golden Nugget, as a defensive move to block Trump from getting a foothold someplace else. I mean, Trump basically, uh, you know, conned them into giving him a lot of money and uh, expending a lot of their money trying to maintain a position that they didn't even have to maintain. Because of this whole situation with Trump, the company takes on a lot of debt. It has four casinos now. Only Bally Park Place is profitable. The other three are not profitable. They are sinkholes. The company is racking up debt. It sells Six Flags in 1987. Six Flags had never been terribly profitable for it, and now they needed the money because they're going into debt on their casinos. So they sell Six Flags. That's probably a big part of the reason why they sell the amusement stuff as well, quite frankly. I mean, they're no longer big in the, in the coin-op stuff, but this gives them extra impetus where it's like, we need some money, we need to sell off divisions. Yeah, you know, they sell off Six Flags, they sell off the coin-op stuff. Because of the disaster with the casinos, none of this really helps. And so by 1990, the company is in really bad financial shape. That is the end of Bob Mullane. Mullane is forced out in 1990 because the company is hemorrhaging money. A new CEO is installed in his place named Arthur Goldberg, who was actually the largest shareholder of the company. So he kind of used the situation and his share in the company to get himself installed at the head of the company. Over the next few years, uh, between 1990 and 1993, they sell off most of their divisions. So they actually sell off the slot machine division, which uh, continues to operate as Bally Gaming International for a couple of decades. Bally Gaming International continues to operate until 2014 when uh, it finally goes away because it is bought out by, of all companies, the Scientific Games Corporation, which we may remember was itself formerly a Bally subsidiary, but at this time had also been eliminated. So the slot machine business that had been O'Donnell's bread and butter is eliminated, or not eliminated, but is sold off in the early 1990s. Scientific Games is sold off in the early 1990s and then eventually buys Bally Gaming, as I said. Life Fitness is sold off. They held on to Aladdin's Castle even after they sold Bally Midway, but Aladdin's Castle is sold to Namco in 1993, so they get out of the arcade business. They shed all of these subsidiaries that they had bought over the years, as well as all of these parts of the company that, that had been a part of the, the Bally experience all the way back to the original company in the 1930s. They just get rid of all of it. Finally, in 1996, 
Bally Corporation is acquired by Hilton Hotels because at this point, the casino business is the big part of what's left. So Hilton's interested in their hotel casinos. So in 1996, Bally ceases to exist. It becomes a, a part of Hilton Hotels. At around that same time, Bally Total Fitness is spun out of the company. So Bally at this point is gone. Bally Total Fitness remains, and then there's still also the Bally Gaming Company that later renames itself Bally Technologies. So there are two companies left after 1996 that have that Bally name. Bally Technologies goes away in 2014. Bally Total Fitness lasts the longest of any company that carries the Bally name, even though it's, as we said at this point, no longer actually Bally. In 2016, Bally Total Fitness finally goes bankrupt, and the last Bally-named entity is no more. So the company dies in 96, but a couple of pieces of it continue to use the Bally name until the uh, 2014 and 2016, respectively. So there you have it. I know some of that, uh, especially at the end, was kind of a whirlwind tour, but it didn't seem like it made sense to do a three-parter on something that was not deep dive specifically focused on video games. So we kind of crammed in some of that later corporate history right at the end there for you. But that's kind of the history of the parent company of Bally. Which kind of makes sense, especially as we get closer and closer to modern or current time. It's harder to have all of that knowledge and perspective that we have for foresight of interviews, corporate documents, so on and so forth. Sure. So, since Bally had a wondrous rise and fall and sort of a whimper of fitness at the end, what do we delve into in our next episode? Well, I thought we might delve a little bit into an interesting sidestep that the computer game industry almost took in the mid-1980s. Uh, this is a topic that has actually been covered pretty well by the Digital Antiquarian, the fantastic history blog run by Jimmy Mayer, good, good colleague of mine. Uh, we collaborate a bit. But in the period after the video game crash, when kind of the action games were going out and the text adventure games were, or not text adventure, and adventure games and RPGs and whatnot were really coming in, there was a period of time when book publishers thought that they might be able to get into the industry and create a new kind of interactive book experience, kind of like how Hollywood thought they could do interactive movies in the 1990s. Uh, and this whole, whole so-called bookware movement has not been covered in a lot of places. Uh, though, as I said, the Digital Antiquarian has done a very good job of it. So uh, I think that next time maybe we should take a look at this whole crazy, brief, but interesting phenomenon of bookware that hit the computer game scene in, in the uh, early to mid-1980s. All right. So they have books on computers now. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.daycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. 
please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 